Well, our passage for this Sunday is Acts 21, verses 27, all the way through Acts 22. And the title is, From Offense to Defense. This is actually a re-giving of the sermon that was given on Sunday, since Sunday's live sermon was not captured in its entirety. So I'll be re-giving a portion of it, and then we're going to merge it with the live recording about midway through. Let's get to our text today. Let me read it. It is long, but I want you to hear it in person as we travel through our sermon series and the narrative of Acts, starting with verse 27, chapter 21. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeking him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people, in the law, and this place. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. When the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains... He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian, then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, chapter 22, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From then on, from then I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. 
Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, and he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before him, for them. Well, it was just last Sunday when we read these words backing up in chapter 21, verses 13 and 14. These words from Paul. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am, not, I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Well, today we find out in this message what the Lord's will was. God's will was that Paul, at least in the book of Acts, would never again be a free man. Oh, he would be going to Rome as he had wished, but not as a free man, not as an itinerant evangelist, nor as a church planter. He would be going 
as a prisoner in the custody and protection of the Roman state. Paul's freedom ended the day he stepped into the temple court. The last eight chapters of Acts, over a quarter of the book of Acts, is dedicated to Paul's arrest and five trials as a prisoner. From today's passage onward, Paul is no longer on the offensive, so to speak, in control of where he goes and what he does. He is on the defensive, on trial. Misunderstanding, slander, mob rule, beatings, arrest, chains, imprisonment, and trial after trial. Step back and think about it. That's probably not how you would have envisioned Acts ending. The Apostle Paul under arrest, in the courtroom, in Roman quarters, in some legal battle. It's not exactly the triumphant endings of most Hollywood movies. I'm not sure why, but I was just thinking about this this week. If I were filming the book of Acts, how would I end it? If it were a movie, well, I think I would do this. I would go back and probably end Acts with chapter 19. If you recall, when Paul is back and ministering in Ephesus, where we find scores of people confessing their evil practices and burning their magic arts and sorcery books. I can see it now. I'd have the camera pan out through the dense smoke, the bonfires of books that are being burned with Acts 19.20 emblazoned on the screen. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And then let the credits roll as Paul freely sailed into the sunset of the Aegean Sea. Well, here's the point in all this, and it's really a question. Is there room in your theology, in your faith, for the real ending of Acts, for the final eight chapters? In other words, is there room in your faith for the slander, suffering, and maligning that Paul will endure? Not just by non-Christians, but even by those who quote-unquote believed. You see, I believe that the Lord wants to really stretch our faith this morning so that we will know and we would believe that even when we are attacked, maligned, and slandered, and put on the defensive as a church or as individual Christians, even in a world which is increasingly hostile to Christianity or our brand of Christianity, even when we are constrained by our enemies around us, the gospel is not constrained. It is unleashed. Paul may be on the defensive from here on out in Acts, but don't be fooled. The good news of the gospel is on the offensive, and God wins. And Paul is ever the opportunist to witness of the gospel and his calling, whether it be in the temple courts or in custody, whether in church or in chains, Paul is ever ready to make his defense. Are you? Are you ready to testify to God when praised and when slandered, on the offensive and on the defensive, when free and when constrained? We may be constrained, but God and the gospel is not. Don't be dismayed. Be ready to make your defense. And that's really my main point, the theme of this message. Don't be dismayed. Be ready to make your defense. 
And we're going to tease that thought out some as we look to two major points from that theme from our narrative this morning. Number one, don't be dismayed. The mob's offense, verses 27 through 36 of chapter 21. When Paul finally steps into the temple courts in chapter 21, verse 27, he is a marked man. He's a bird caught in a snare. It's obvious that many Jews are offended by Paul's ministry. And secondly, they are taking matters into their own hands, literally. They are on the offensive, seeking to kill Paul. Well, what are these Jews so fired up about? Well, note that it is the Jews from Asia who were actually rallying up the crowd. Verse 27. It's most likely that they were Jews from Ephesus, where Paul had just spent three years. They had witnessed how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, had spread among the Gentiles, and they felt threatened. Threatened that the Gentile converts were becoming Christians, and becoming Christians without having first become Jews. That is, following Jewish law and customs. They thus accused Paul in verse 28 of, quote, teaching everyone, everywhere, a little hyperbole there, against the people and the law and this place, thus rendering, at least in their eyes, their religion, their law, their temple as useless. See, it's true that Paul was preaching salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, that a Gentile didn't have to become a Jew, did not have to become circumcised, or follow their dietary laws, for example, to become a Christian. But Paul wasn't denigrating Judaism, but showing how Christ was a fulfillment of the law, the Jewish scripture, and that in Christ, the new temple people met with God. But such a teaching didn't seem to matter at this point, once the people were convinced that Paul was flat out rejecting Judaism, it's not surprising to learn that they accused him of desecrating the temple, supposing that he had brought an Ephesian Gentile into the inner courts of the temple. Verse 29, and it was a crime punishable by death. Yet none of this was true. The accusations weren't true. Paul was innocent, but it didn't matter. And the hardest to swallow in the scene may be this. James, the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem, had warned that there were, quote, many thousands of Jewish believers, end quote, i.e. Christians in Jerusalem, who were told that Paul had taught Gentiles to forsake Moses and all the Jewish customs. In other words, these believers were feeling threatened and were volatile. James says they were actually zealous. Now, when we hear that word, we tend to think of, well, yeah, they were passionate. But the meaning of this word also has distinctly violent connotations in Scripture. In other words, they were ready to do some damage. And I can't help but think that even some, quote-unquote, believers stirred up by the Asian Jews were a part of the slander campaign, and perhaps even worse, this attempt to lynch Paul. We read in verses 31 to 36 in chapter 21 that the disturbance in the temple was so bad that a Roman cohort that's up to 1,000 soldiers descended upon the temple courts. Stationed at the northwest tower of the temple, they could see all that was happening below. So the Roman soldiers run down onto the scene and into this melee. 
It's so bad and so loud, they can't even get a name or discern what all the chaos and uproar is about. So they chain Paul up, presumably between two soldiers, not just to secure him, but to carry him away for his own protection. How can that be? Well, welcome to the mob mentality. In fact, that's the word used in verse 36. It was a mob of the people. Well, I can say I've experienced mob violence firsthand. It was probably one of the most frightful things I've ever encountered. Why? Because the rage can so quickly spread and become untethered, unhinged from the actual offense which may have started it. It was the year 1990, I believe March 31st, 1990 to be exact, and I was a college student in London, England. I was innocently having a meal near Trafalgar Square in downtown London. I was in Taco Bell <laughs> getting my burrito fix. And I was innocently enjoying my burrito when suddenly a large trash can, actually several of them, lit on fire, came crashing through the all-glass front of the restaurant. Glass was everywhere. People were in a panic, screaming, even coming up on my table. It was chaos. So I did. Well, I stepped out the back door. I was curious to see what was happening. Apparently, what had started as a peaceful protest, the very unpopular tax by Margaret Thatcher, dubbed the poll tax, turned violent. A mob of people came rushing down the streets, converging on Trafalgar Square. I just wanted to make sure I had my stats right, looked it up this week, and there were reportedly from the BBC 200,000 people who converged here in downtown London. They were overturning cars, lighting them on fire, and throwing all type of projectiles through storefronts. It later became apparent that a relatively few small group a relatively small group of people had actually started the riot. But in the heat of the moment, people were swept up in the passion and violence. Many people didn't even seem to know why they were so angry. Rage replaced any type of reason. And the target of the riot? Hundreds, if not thousands, of unarmed London police called Bobbies. People were pelting them with everything they could get their hands on, lighting things on fire, looting stores, climbing on top of four- and five-story scaffolding, and trying to bring it down on the crowd. How do I know? Because I was seeking refuge under some of that same scaffolding. It was like a demonic rage and destruction had swept across the city. I was furious at everyone else who was furious. I remember one guy looked at me in rage. And I can remember thinking, I am going to take this guy down. And I didn't even know why. Mob mentality. It's real. It's evil. It's destructive. And here's the, even the most sobering part. You don't have to go to England to experience such a mob. You don't even have to go to the streets. Over the last few years, I've noticed that there can be this cultural dogpile or maligning that can rather quickly coalesce against individuals or even churches on the internet. Thinking the best is people who are getting swept up in half-truths, misunderstanding, or perhaps ignorance. That at worst, it's a flat-out evil intent to destroy the reputation of individuals, churches, 
or even movements. Such blogs can connect with those who have been hurt. Yes, even legitimately hurt. And can tap into this pent-up anger or bitterness that can reside within. But perhaps the greatest destruction that blogs and this type of blog or internet mentality can do, it can suck in people who were not even part of the problem in the first place. Like me on that providential day in London. It's this mob mentality that we encounter in this Acts narrative. And we are not immune to it today, individually or as a church or even as a denomination of churches. Listen, there were Jews who most likely, according to James, believed in Christ, who at the same time may have been seeking to kill Paul in the same manner that Christ himself was flogged and killed. Oh, it happened to Paul as he followed Christ. And it can happen to us as well as we follow Christ. Even if the attacks are not physical, but verbal. I want you to ponder how we got here in this text. I want us this room to ponder how Paul got in a situation in the first place. I think it's instructive. Number one, what was Paul even doing in Jerusalem in the first place? Well, we know from what we studied that Paul had been preparing for years among the mostly Gentile churches in Asia and in Europe to collect an offering to bring to Jerusalem. Why? To show the mostly Gentile churches and their solidarity, their unity, and their care for the poor, for the church in Jerusalem. Paul had even postponed his trip to Rome and Spain to deliver this sizable offering to the church in Jerusalem. So Paul comes to give this offering to the church. Secondly, Paul comes, and he's under no obligation, according to his own conscience, to purify himself according to Jewish custom. But he decides to undergo a week-long purification ritual. Not only that, with great cost and expense to himself, he pays for four other individuals to do the same, to do likewise. Get the point? It's clear that Paul is going beyond and above to pacify the Jews, to show his solidarity with the Jews, and to not become a stumbling block to their coming to Christ. Paul in Jerusalem was simply practicing what he had preached to the Corinthian church. We'll put it up there. I want you to hear his own words in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. He said, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. I go on to verse 23. I do it all. Here's the motive. 
for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. You see, strictly speaking, Paul had done everything right to win the Jews. Everything right to garner their respect. And yet, look what happens. The first scene ends with the mob screaming, Away with him! Away with him! Do those words sound familiar? Perhaps they do. It was just years earlier that the crowd in Jerusalem was screaming these same words. But it wasn't Paul they were screaming at. It was Jesus. We read in Luke 23, verse 18, But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release us Barabbas. In verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! Jesus came to die for the church in Jerusalem. And it's those whom he came to die for who killed him. Paul desired to bless the church in Jerusalem. And yet many people, those outside and maybe perhaps even those within the church, wanted to kill him. Is there any room in your theology, any room in your faith for such opposition, for righteous suffering, even when you haven't done anything wrong? even when your desires are to follow the Lord and bless his people. This is where the stretching of our faith comes in, doesn't it? For some, you may be here this morning and you kind of view Christianity as what is sometimes called this pie-in-the-sky religion. You know, there's this God in heaven and he loves you and He freely forgives you of all your wrongdoing based on what Jesus did in taking your punishment on the cross. And he did it so you can dwell with God for all eternity in paradise. And you hear that, you just say, that's too good to be true. No. Christianity is too hard not to be true. You see, apart from God's supernatural grace. You won't endure. You won't persevere to the end. It's that difficult. Following Christ is that difficult. We see it in the book of Acts, and it's no different for us today. No different for us today. Oh, but there's grace. There's grace for today, and there's grace for tomorrow if you're a Christian. It's called future grace. Oh, yes, to persevere to the end. But sometimes in the difficulties and all that's happening around us, we can't forget that. We think it ought to be different once we are Christians. When we've done everything we know to communicate respect and love for those we are seeking to minister to serve, and yet we're then slandered and attacked, it can shake us, can it? I can't. It can throw us for a loop. Why? Because these attacks can often reveal un 
articulated assumptions about what it means to be a Christian and to live the Christian life. These assumptions that we have are often veiled, at least to us, until we are maliciously, salaciously attacked online, in person, by a family member, or even by an old friend. You say, how could they say that? But the question doesn't stop there. It morphs into, how could God allow this? If you keep traveling with that thought, it becomes, where is God in all of this? I have detected in me these wrong assumptions. If this endeavor is of the Lord, I will have favor with men. Maybe, maybe not. If my motives are basically righteous to bless and to serve, there will be little or no opposition to what I do. Probably not. If I'm faithfully sharing or preaching the gospel, it will be received. Now, I know in one sense, it's not true. But functionally, it's how I can operate. But I can go further, and I suggest you can as well. I can think, if what I say or do is is met with fierce opposition, maybe this is not the Lord's will after all. Maybe it's not, or maybe it is. Or maybe God is just angry at me. I must be guilty some way, somehow. Or perhaps we apply this logic to other people. Obviously, that person is a lightning rod for controversy and criticism. They must be wrong. They must be sinning. I'll discover the truth. Oh, church, be careful with the judgments you use. Perhaps the truth is that God is using the very attacks you are witnessing or encountering to further his gospel. Not all opposition that you face or that I face internally in the church or externally outside of the church is discipline for our sin. It may be, but it may also not be. Paul was a self-acknowledged chief of sinners. Paul wasn't adverse to looking at his own heart and seeing where he had sinned. But that's not what he does here when facing the mob's violent offense. In fact, quite the opposite. You see in verses 37 through 39 of this chapter 21, the tribune, that is the commander, thinks Paul is a known Egyptian terrorist coming back to overthrow Jerusalem. Listen, the whole thing's going from bad to worse. You want to know what a really bad day looks like? Yeah, read this text again. That's a really bad day. But Paul doesn't panic. He calmly states, I'm from Tarsus. You see, Tarsus was a prominent city. It had clout. In the eyes of the Romans, you may not judge a book by its cover, but back in the Roman times, you judge a person by their city of origin. So he lets them know, I am Paul of Tarsus. Why does he do that? Just got to get himself off the hook. 
No, I believe he does it to win favor with the Romans so he can have permission to speak to the mob who is trying to kill him. You've got to be kidding. I'd be flashing my ID and my passport saying, get me a one-way ticket out of town now. I'm out of here. But Paul saw the mob not as God's judgment on him, not as a misreading of God's will. No, he saw it as a gospel opportunity. He had hundreds, if not thousands, of listening ears, a hostile audience, but yes, a captive audience, which he would never have had otherwise. So what does Paul do? He gives his testimony. He actually calls it, in verse 1 of chapter 22, a defense, an apologia. From what you get the word apologetics, he makes a defense, a defense of his faith and calling. Wow. That leads us to point two. Be ready, church, to make your defense. Let's look at Paul's defense in chapter 22. And so we read in this chapter how Paul actually gives his testimony before the hostile crowd, how he was saved and called to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Now, we know the story already from Acts 9, but now we get to hear it in Paul's own words. And I think there's much, oh, so much we can learn from the way that Paul presents his story and makes his defense. I just want to mention two brief points. Number one, what catches my attention about Paul's defense or Paul's testimony is that he doesn't appear to be offended at those who have so violently slandered and attacked him. I'm thinking sinfully, if I'm about to go down, yeah, if this is my last stand, yeah, I'm going to let it rip. <laughs> I'm going to proclaim my innocence. That's it. Oh. Yet Paul, he shows great respect and deference to the very people who were trying to kill him, his antagonist. He addresses them in verse 1 of chapter 22 as brothers and fathers. What prominently marks his offense is not his offense at them, but rather how he seeks to sensitively relate to the Jews. That he's in fact one of them. Paul speaks of his Jewishness and quotes, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Verse 3. And yet, he also boldly speaks as one who has encountered the risen Lord Jesus with boldness. No apology, no shame. Secondly, what stands out in his defense to me is that his calling and mission, what he's doing and why he's doing it, is not his idea. He has been commissioned by the risen Lord Savior, commissioned in Damascus, and then again later commissioned in the temple when praying which any pious Jew would have taken note of. In other words, Paul's conversion and his call was ultimately God's idea, his inscrutable will. Paul's defense was not mere logic. Oh, he knew 
how to reason with the Jews. But I want you to hear this. His defense was not mere logic, but revelation. What he had received from God. Friends, none of us here have had a Damascus Road encounter like Paul that I'm aware of. But we have the revelation of God's word, the Bible, to appeal to whenever we make our defense. When we make our defense of our faith and why we do what we do, are you, are we appealing to God's revelation, his infallible word, his revelation to us? And are we doing it boldly yet respectfully? As I read Paul's testimony, I can't help but think of 1 Peter 3.15 where we read these words on the screen. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Paul in our story is a prime example of what Peter is talking about. Don't fear. Honor Christ as Lord. Be prepared to make a defense, but do so with gentleness and respect. Now, this doesn't mean that if you do it this way, that you're going to win your audience over. In fact, it may mean you will have the honor of suffering like Christ. But may our suffering be for righteousness' sake, as we read in 1 Peter, and not because of our own sinful reaction or sin. May it not be. And so we see upon Paul's mention of his mission to the Gentiles in verse 21, chapter 22, that the crowd explodes again, the very next verse. Like the Jerusalem's crowd's reaction to Stephen, like the reaction to Jesus, like the reaction to the prophets before them, the people want to kill Paul. By throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, they are saying that Paul has been opposing God's will. Yet, friends, Paul was doing God's will. By testifying to the Jews and later testifying to the Romans and Romans officials, the very thing he had been commissioned to do to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to you and to me. Oh, it probably wasn't the way that Paul, well, I know most likely from his own writings, this probably wasn't the way Paul had figured it all going down. He knew he could be imprisoned and arrested, but he had plans to go on, we know, to Rome and even to Spain. But it becomes increasingly clear in the chapters to come that God is opening opportunities to testify before kings that would have never occurred otherwise. God may just, may just be wanting you to testify of him, to make your defense, even in the most surprising ways, even 
to the least expected of people. Why? For his glory. Oh, for his glory and the spread of the gospel. I've experienced this firsthand, and it's a lesson I'll never forget. The same year I was in London for those Paul tax riots, I traveled to the Middle East. I was in a very conservative Muslim region of a Muslim country. And I was advertising, discreetly or so I thought, for what was called a Bible correspondence course. It was a way through the mail that you could do a Bible study. So I was doing this as a legwork for a church planning team that was planning to come to that city. Well, one day I came home, and to my surprise, there were a number of armed policemen waiting at my door. And I was arrested for proselytizing and put into custody with my other team members. That wasn't the worst of it. We had a van full of Bibles and literature. They were all confiscated. And furthermore, all of our faces were put on the front page of the newspaper. Not a good day. Not a good day. For three days, we awaited trial. It was three days of questioning and interrogation. We knew what we were doing was not illegal according to their own constitution. And we made our defense. And the state began to question. Question us not just on what we were doing, but why we were doing it. But then I noticed after just hours of questioning, the questions began to change. Not so much why are you doing it, but who is this Jesus? I remember at one point, one, there were several Muslim judges who stopped the court reporter and said off the record, tell me about Jesus. I want to know more. Well, in the end, three days later, we were spit at (laughs) by another judge, but we were released. And we received all of our Bibles and literature back. And we were then able to hand them out one by one to all the attorneys, to the policemen, and even to a judge before being kicked out of the city. God gave us an audience for the gospel that we would have never had access to otherwise. And you know what? It came not through our brilliant offensive strategy, but through our testimony and defense of the gospel. And the coolest thing of all, one year later, a church was planted in that city. Church, do not be dismayed by the antagonism we may face. Sometimes the best offense is a good defense, a readiness to testify of the gospel and the hope you have in Christ. Are you ready? God is giving us many opportunities. And I don't believe that you have to leave your city to make such a defense or to encounter such opportunities. As a society, 
I can't help but wonder if God is using such lightning rod issues as the definition of marriage, the sanctity of life, to bring heat to the church, but light to the world. On such issues as the definition of marriage, we will not be able to hide, nor should we. The media and the political pressure has now come to us. And we are, quote, forced to articulate our biblical basis for our beliefs. And as we defend and stand up for biblical teaching, we're going to face opposition, slander, ridicule, even discrimination. But I believe the gospel can and will shine. The same can be said of the issue of abortion. Saw Cal Beisner here, the issue of the environment and the green movement. Cal Beisner, member here at Palm Vista, is head of the Cornwall Alliance. And he's bringing a biblical worldview and teaching to this topic of stewardship of our environment. He's doing many other things as well, but he's doing this before a powerful audience. He's doing it before leaders and politicians for which we are grateful. For some of you, a defense of Christian beliefs may mean utilizing our political and our legal system as well as exercising our rights as Paul does when appealing to Roman citizenship and his right to trial in verses 22 through 29. Don't have time to go there, but we read it at the beginning. But for most of us, making a defense will not entail standing before a judge, probably won't entail standing before a political body, but it may mean standing before a coworker, standing before a friend, standing before a family member as well. Explaining why you define marriage as between one man and one woman. Explaining why you volunteer at Heartbeat of Miami, a crisis pregnancy center. Explaining why you are going on a mission trip to Cuba. Are you ready to make such a defense with gentleness and respect, honoring Christ as Lord. This next year, as a church, we plan on providing teaching and context to help you make such a defense, to respectfully answer the questions, and yes, even the charges that we face in our culture for our biblical view on marriage, on abortion, on creation, etc., and for you yourself to have questions answered, to build a dialogue on these very issues. Friends, please don't be dismayed. At times, you may feel like you are on your heels, playing defense, and the critics in the media or in your own life are in control. At times, you may feel constrained by the law, by your workplace, by your extended family, from freely testifying of Christ. But God is not constrained. And at the end of the day, God will be your defense. God will be 
your fortress. God will be your shelter as the gospel is unleashed, even in the most surprising of ways. Let's pray. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up as we sing A Mighty Fortress as our last song. Oh, Lord, I ask that you would strengthen us even now. As we conclude with this final song. Lord, we are singing to you. But there's a realization as well. That we're singing to our own souls. We're speaking truth to our own souls. So, Lord, as we sing, may you take these truths that we are learning in your word. And may we speak them boldly. May we sing them for the edification of our souls. For those who may feel weak and timid, discouraged this morning. Lord, we sing to our souls what you have revealed through your word. And may you edify and build us up now as we look to you as our defense. As we look to you for the very words in which to speak. Oh Lord, that we may not be dismayed. That we may be ready to proclaim and to testify of you, O Savior. Amen. Amen. Let us rise and let us sing.